Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 104. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here with a Monoreal Radio roulette this week. Thank you to loyal listener Will Johansson. He threw us some numbers, and those numbers landed us on 1954's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Honest to God, this is a complete coincidence. Because coming off of Treasure Island, Treasure Planet, Treasure Everything, to go from above the water to under the water, it almost seems too perfect. Also a big coincidence with another book adaptation. Right. However, to be fair... Will gave us the numbers. It was actually really sweet what he did. He he gave your uh, your Saint my Leo scroll, numbers. My scroll numbers from when I was a teak. Yes. Yes. And that's kind of how we landed on that because he and I were both in the same chapter, just at different times, of course. And because Disney Plus keeps screwing with me, that's why we ended up on Twenty Thousand Leagues too. Because I thought last time we did a roulette. There were 167 rows. So those were the numbers that I put out. They have since added titles. And taken some away. Apparently, because now there was 164 rows. So we hit 164 at the end. Or no, 164 is your number. Yeah. We hit 161 or 162 and then had had to to reset. Yeah, and then had to go back to the beginning. So that's how we landed here. And after all of the math that we had to do to get here, we weren't going to redo it. No. We're not putting out new numbers. No, all of those numbers led us to 20,000. I have so a very coincidence, but I don't care. I have a very interesting story with related to this film that I will get into quickly because you're going to set me up to tell the story anyway. I think I told the story on our Disneyland recap show, which was like episode 15 or something like it was a long time ago where I had a panic attack on 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I never get tired of this story. When the lagoon was there, it is the lagoon was ne- is is now where um I think uh, the Winnie the Pooh attraction I think is where the lagoon used to be in Florida. It's yes. well, I mean, in Disneyland, obviously, it's still there. It's right, just, just Nemo now. Yeah, it's rethemed. But um, no, I thought it was um, Voyage of the Little Mermaid where it was because they have a light that projects the Nautilus. I think, honestly, I think that whole area. I mean, it was it huge. was huge. So it was I, massive. I think, yeah. I think that whole area was where that lagoon was because um, those attractions. No, Winnie are the not Pooh far- is Mr. Toad. You're right. That's what it is. I knew there was some throwback in there, so you're right. It was well. Anyway, it, that is this is neither here nor there. I was four years old. It's 1990. Having a great time on these very small, very tight, very narrow submarines, looking through the porthole at all of the fish, and then you get attacked by the squid. And I was four, and I didn't realize that it was not real, because when you go to Disney World, everything is real. Sometimes things are too real, and uh, I had a panic attack on 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I hope Galaxy's Edge took very thorough notes from this ride as far as being a fully immersive experience. Yes, but the question is, how fully immersive is the film 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea? And I say that because... At its time, it was completely revolutionary. You know, I the, the average movie-going audience had really other... I mean, even Treasure Island, a great book adaptation, but the special effects in this film, the squid itself, was all very thrilling for 1954. So I would imagine that if you saw this in theaters, it must have been like seeing it in 3D IMAX, the way that this thing is shot. You're also talking about... Four years after Treasure Island, we're still ten way ten years away from Mary Poppins. So to put it in those terms, as far as the Disney catalog goes and what Walt was working on, this is a massive leap from Treasure Island. It's huge. So we're gonna do this review linear because every now and again, for those of you who have listened to the show for a while, first off, welcome back and thank you. Uh, to those who are new, welcome and thank you as well. Um, but sometimes you get a film that is just so convoluted and there's so much going on that we can't just give a plot synopsis and circle back and talk around to it because it just gets too confusing. So we're going to do this basically straight through with our commentary here. The movie opens in 1868 in the South Seas. 
Captain Nemo and the Nautilus are destroying ships, leading people to believe that a monster is terrorizing the sea. Looking for volunteers to attempt to defeat the quote-unquote ship killer, we meet a harpooner named Ned Land. We then meet Professor... Aranax and his colleague Kansai, who are also planning to pursue the monster. So immediately here, you are introduced to three of your four stars of the movie. They're introduced very, very quickly. And I think the sets and the backgrounds are outstanding. And you pointed out right away that it was the Universal Studios backlot, which it was. Excuse me. And I think... I think that it's kind of funny now, as the years have gone on, especially as we've kind of delved into the more classic Hollywood, thanks to Disney+, Plus. how many times it is so obvious that they are reusing these sets over and over again. I thought this was Disney's backlot, though. No, this was Universal. It was, but it's funny because regardless, it looks like Pete's Dragon, which came yeah. way later. But they definitely, I mean, case in point, Disney definitely knows how to do a seaside town. Absolutely. I mean, it's dressed beautifully. It really is. Um, before that, though, we do have another classic book start, which really we've only seen in all of the fairy tales. They put the the book on the blue velvet. You know, you can listen to our earlier episodes like Cinderella Sleeping Beauty every single one even Jungle Book and then Enchanted they went and did it as a throwback too as a spoof but it was interesting to me that they didn't do it for Treasure Island they do it here they put it underwater or well maybe not actually underwater but there's a very cool effect yeah um and they do they give you like the first page so that you can read the paragraph as the setup I kind of feel like one way or the other. I mean, I appreciate the book because it's tradition. But what I don't like is our next scene is this town gathering where they're giving you the legend and they're explaining what's going on. So I kind of feel like that was a little redundant. And that's also going to be a theme throughout. Like, heads up, I'm going to say about a million times, this is too long and this could be cut down. Uh, Yeah, I'm not going to say it quite as many times because after a while I I start sounding redundant and repetitive, but that is going to happen a lot in this movie. We'll just cut you down. Whatever. I also love the costumes here. Like, everything yes. seems to be completely accurate to the times. They really did do a, a nice job immediately. I, I think that you it does pull you in right away. Even, like, Kirk Douglas's outfit, which, by the way, holy star power. Yeah, a lot, James Mason, yeah, Kirk Douglas, Peter Lorre. I mean, there are so many names in this movie. And again, I mean, this was very early on in his in Walt's foray into live action. But um, yeah, what Kirk Douglas is wearing is probably like the most stereotypical s- sailor suit you've ever seen in your life. But it still works. It does work, and I think it it is traditional to the time period. I think it's accurate for the time period. You're talking 1868. Later that night, the U.S. government uh, offers to send Aranax and Kansai to the South Sea to help them also pursue the monster. They then set sail with Ned and Captain Farragut to the South Pacific. Um, Again, the sets continue to impress. The most impressive thing that happens here is when they get on the water, and you can tell that Kansai is like, no pun intended, he is a fish out of water. His makeup is fantastic. How pale and washed out he looks from being seasick. Yes. And even before that, um, the room that they're staying in in San Francisco, I it's just like a simple living room set, but it totally captures that era. I loved that little sequence. Yeah, I think the furniture, the trim around the room, it, it looked so elegant, you know, when things were made by hand and made to last. It really it looked great. Uh, after some time out on the sea, the captain tells the crew that they are ending their mission and will be left in Saigon. So Ned leads the crew in a sing-along, like you do. <laughs> I mean, I know they used to do stuff like this, sea shanties and sing-alongs. It kind of seems a little out of place because this movie is not a musical, But this happens like within the first 10 or 15 minutes. So you're kind of led to believe it's going to be um, 
you know, like a very lighthearted Disney family film. It's fun. Don't get me wrong. It's fun. It's a good scene, but it does seem a little out of place. Again, this is where we could have used a little bit of editing because it breaks to like a full on number and it keeps going for what, maybe two to three minutes? At least three. I think that's where we're treading into musical territory. If he had just maybe picked up the guitar, hummed a couple of bars and left it at that, I think it would have played off to the more serious tone over all of the movie. But here, it almost feels like Bert in Mary Poppins when we first meet him. Like, it works because it's Bert and that's what he's doing just as a side hustle that day to make some extra money and playing the instrument. Um, So it slowly brings you into the musical and it totally works for Mary Poppins. Here, I agree with you. I was kind of like, are we going musical are there going to be more numbers like this is everybody going to be, be like tap dancing on this boat at some point yeah because it's it's all of them start singing along yeah i mean it's what they did the sea shanty totally works but i think they needed to dial it back a little bit it's also the way it's shot the way it's tracking kirk douglas through the whole thing if they would have just had him more in the background as ambient music playing to entertain the crew it would have worked much better yeah The fun ends when they discover that a ship has been destroyed with no survivors and they suspect it was the monster who had destroyed it. They spot the monster and attempt to destroy it only to find that their own ship ends up being destroyed. Aranax and Kansai float away on debris and later discover that the monster is really a metal submarine, the Nautilus. So they climb aboard and marvel at the wonders. Ned soon arrives and he also climbs on board. Suffice to say, and I'm just getting this out of the way now, the Nautilus, by far, is the most impressive set in this film. It's stunning. I even would go so far as to say it is one of the most impressive sets that Disney has done to date. And I feel like, unfortunately, to today's audience, when you're used to seeing something like the Avengers headquarters or Shuri's lab in Black Panther, this is probably going to get a little lost on you. But... I love the blend of the old and the new. I love the steampunky vibe that they bring in. Um, And when you think about how they made this set function with all of the doors that have to open and close. And I don't just mean, you know, it's not like a regular door. It's a a door where you have to turn the handle and open it. Or even things like Captain Nemo's quarters where he can open the window to see out of the front of the Nautilus. You know, it's things like that I feel like get taken for granted nowadays. But for the time, they were so revolutionary. And for this alone, I wish they had kept the ride as it was. Because the ship is just so cool. Or because we have to have Nemo and we have to modernize it. Give me a bar that looks like this. I'm totally on board for like the, on, honestly, you know what I would do actually? Um, and I hate to say it because I do love the rest, the restaurant. If they ever redo Coral Reef, make it the Nautilus. Yeah, it would be a really interesting change. I, it probably would not fit in Epcot, but it would be an interesting change nonetheless. I think it, it totally would, though, because Epcot used to be all about the edutainment. And being that this was, you know, a book adapted to film and it was about, you know, there are parts where they they do study the sea life. I, I think it could totally play into the theme of Epcot or maybe as it was in the 90s. I don't know where exactly we're going now with all these budget cuts. Yeah. I love how, I agree with you, I think that the set is uh, way ahead of its time, and it goes back to what I said earlier. I can't imagine what it must have been like seeing this in a movie theater in the 1950s, but I love how like the rowboat that they use when they do go ashore just detaches. Yes. It is not, it's not you know, a lifeboat that hangs over the side. Obviously, it can't be. It's a submarine, but it is something that actually attaches and detaches as a part of the submarine. I kind of feel like you don't notice it in the beginning of the film but towards the end when they're trying to make the escape and they have to line it up perfectly and secure it and it just becomes part of the ship 
that's when it really looks most amazing to me is how seamlessly it blends. While on board, Aranax and Kansai see men in scuba outfits because they're looking out a porthole window and they're performing a burial at the bottom of the sea. The men catch the pair watching them and head back to the Nautilus, ending the escape plan for the three intruders. Taken captive, they meet Captain Nemo, who has heard of Aranax and his research, and he tells him that he is not a compassionate man and does not follow the rules of the world, and he makes him choose between continuing the voyage together or to be left to die at sea with Ned and Kansai, because he's going to leave Ned and Kansai regardless, but it's basically save your skin or die with your friends. And apparently this is all a test of some sort, of loyalty at least. So he brings all three of the men on board. At dinner that night, Nemo tells the group to try to not escape without facing punishment, of course, and that they will join his expedition. They do all of their hunting and farming underwater and soon arrive at an underwater island. This is one of the most impressive parts of the film, because of the underwater photography. I will say this one last time, so as to not repeat myself. This is 1954, and it looks better than most underwater scenes shot now, and a lot of that is because they actually shot it underwater. It's not CGI. It's absolutely incredible. I mean, they had a dive team, so you did have professionals working on this to help make it look so realistic. But like when you think about what they had to do to pull this off and not only just get the cameras down there, but like the costuming, those are big, heavy looking suits and they're still managing what, what strikes me most is the harvest scene when, um, I mean the, the burial is very impressive, but then they do the harvest to show, you know, what they're, they go through their whole dinner sequence and yeah. nobody really wants to eat what Captain Nemo is serving him. Other than Aranax. He's the only one. Yeah, because he's he's intrigued and he's on an adventure and this is what he studied and now he wants to actually put it in practice. Um, but everybody else is pretty much grossed out by all of the seafood. So they do this whole sequence to show where it comes from. And it's not just the costuming. It's all the contraptions that they have to hold the fish and then they're they're strolling sea turtles just right past the camera. Yeah. It's absolutely incredible. Almost too incredible because they let it play for too long. I think yep. this is a classic example of you got married to really cool footage and it could have done with some trimming. And that's that's the thing we had talked about this a little bit um when we reviewed Summer Magic with Lou Mangiello, um, during the title song, you see this whole nature sequence and they cut away to little rabbits and deer in the yes. forest. And I kind of bashed it a little bit because I was like, this is such an unmotivated music video break to woodland creatures. Right. It clearly is stock footage that they're using. Exactly. And that's kind of what starts to happen here because they're letting it play very long. And as cool as it looks, there's kind of a fine line that they're towing where it starts to become a documentary. And this is, you know, when you have a fiction film, that's part of the advantage of using a medium like that is because you want to tell a story, you want to focus in on some things. And I had said this about Treasure Island as well, that as far as the medium goes, I'm surprised that Walt didn't want to explore it more as far as doing, you know, normally you would shoot your coverage shot. So you do a, a wide shot of the whole sequence and then you go back and you make the actors do it again and you shoot their close ups and the shots that you're going to punch in to really focus in on certain things here. You get a little bit of a pass because you're underwater. I, I get why you're not doing a million takes because it was very, very difficult. But between the scenes dragging a little bit and the narration too, it really starts feeling Nat Geo and less like, hey, I'm watching this cool sci-fi film. Yeah, and I suspect that part of the reason why they did that was because A, they're trying to be revolutionary and B, 
it was so expensive to shoot all of this that they were just going to use what they had. Right. It is a bit of a pace killer by today's standards, by 1954 standards. Not so much, but that's the question we will ask at the end of this review is, does the movie hold up? While farming underwater, Ned and Kansai spot a shipwreck and attempt to retrieve its treasure. They are attacked by a shark, but are saved by Nemo, who is then furious with them because they were only supposed to be down there getting food, the bare essentials. He shows Ned that they have a large collection of treasure, but they need food, not treasure, to survive, and Aranax warns him not to cross Captain Nemo again. This is a very important scene in fleshing out Nemo. Because up until this point, you don't really know a lot about Nemo at all, other than he's basically an anti-hero. Right, and you don't really know if you can trust him because here's this eccentric guy who's got a lot of money and he's basically saying, I'm done with the real world. I'm going to make my own underwater. And I have to imagine that to the 1950s audience, he must have seemed like a weird recluse, whether or not you've read the book. Now, living in 2020 and seeing what we've seen this year, Captain Nemo is my homie. Yeah. And and he sits there and he plays that organ. And it's just so wonderfully unsettling. There's just so much about him. That is so interesting as we start to unpack him. And we also meet the sea lion Esmeralda, which is their pet. Again, you don't know if he's out of his mind or if he's brilliant. And I think part of that, too, is because they played him straight. Yes. It's not like um, like Back to the Future, for example, to, to take one of your films, uh, where it's like you're not sure if Doc is a genius or if he's out of his mind, but because he plays it a little wacky, you lean on the side of out of his mind. Here, you're really not sure. That's the difference between stoic and eccentric. Exactly. After 10,000 leagues under the sea, so in theory we're halfway through the movie, Nemo takes Aranax, Uh, (laughs) he takes him ashore and shows him the prisoner camp at the island of Rurapente and tells him that he was once a prisoner there but escaped with who later becomes the crew of the Nautilus and they fled to the secret island of Volcania. He then orders an attack on a steamer leaving the island in order to destroy the weapons that they are transporting off of said island because he is, in his mind, self-righteous and believes that he is saving lives and ending war if he is to destroy these these weapons and again it just adds so much to this scene and then he's back at the organ again and you don't know whether he is just insanely self-righteous or if he's a maniac right and you don't know if he's helping the greater good because here he just destroyed a whole bunch of lives that are on the ship but like did you actually save even more right and then when he's at the helm of the nautilus launching this attack he just has this manic look on his face which when you want to compare it to the movies we just talked about you have a fever-eyed long john silver this is far more unsettling because he just assume he just appears to be completely out of his mind so ned is horrified by the scene and he accuses aranax of being a backstabber for befriending captain nemo nemo ever self-righteous, tells Aranax that he isn't a murderer, but he's an Avenger. Maybe even before Captain America. He also reveals that his family was killed by what he calls the hated nation in exchange for information of his discoveries because he doesn't want to tell anybody what he has found at sea. So instead of giving up the information, they killed his family. And again, it starts to unpack this character a little bit more. Kansai tells Aranax that he can't stand behind Nemo, but Aranax tells him he doesn't understand Nemo. Because remember, 
Aranax is the only one that knows about this backstory with the family. He hasn't told uh, Ned or Kansai. So Kansai becomes disenchanted with the professor and relays all of this to Ned. They then sneak into Nemo's quarters and steal their coordinates to Vulcania, which Ned writes onto notes that he puts into bottles and he casts out to sea in the hopes that they will find help because all of this time as they see that he is starting to become truly manic and he is very self-righteous at this point they're in self-preservation mode and they're looking for an escape they're hoping to be rescued from this guy um i also like the friendship that's starting to form here between kansai and ned um i think that it's good comic relief for a movie that is very serious but it really does start to pick up the steam a little bit in building where this movie will inevitably go took the words right out of my mouth um i also like it for kansai as a character because up until this point he's your sidekick right he almost reminds me of like a patsy and monty python that's yeah. just along for the ride clapping yeah. the coconuts to feed someone else's delusions of themselves um so i like that he kind of finds his mojo and starts standing up for himself Absolutely. The Nautilus becomes grounded on a reef off the coast of New Guinea, and they convince Nemo to let them go ashore, but he warns them of the cannibals. Other than um, the underwater scenes and the Nautilus itself, this is by far the most picturesque setting in the film. And I go so far as to say, it is one of the most picturesque settings in any Disney film period yeah i'm surprised they didn't revisit it for pirates honestly yeah it is that good not believing nemo because they don't believe a word he says anyway ned and kansai say goodbye as ned attempts to escape but he soon learns that the cannibals are real and the two barely escape alive as they escape to the nautilus with the natives chasing them the natives then board the nautilus and nemo electrocutes them to fend them off. He has a switch that pulses an electrical current on the outside of the Nautilus, because why not? And uh, he fends them off. The chase off this island is really interesting because it's one of the few times in the movie where the adversity that they face is man and not a sea creature. What surprises me about this scene is how much carnage there is like they really they don't show a lot like there's not you know there's no gratuitous blood or anything like that but they hold nothing back as far as like even when Nemo ordered the ship blown up they don't show anyone getting off of the ships they don't even try to play it off as well there were a few survivors so they really didn't hold anything back and what is so surprising to me as well is how much pirates is actually derivative of this sequence. We talked about it a lot when we reviewed Treasure Island is, you know, we knew that Pirates of the Caribbean took from a lot of pirate folklore, not really not realizing when we reviewed it how specific it was to Treasure Island. And here, this reminds me of the scene where Johnny Depp is running down the beach being chased by the Pelagostas. Yes. So that was kind of a surprise to see this play out and like how much it, I dare even say, copied it. it especially too when you have Nemo sitting at the organ and immediately, yeah. in retrospect, you have to think about Davy Jones. Exactly. Although Nemo's not playing with tentacles. So that, that was pretty innovative on their part. Yes. After... Everybody is fended off and they escape the island cannibals. Nemo orders that Ned be held prisoner for disobeying him. While attempting to avoid a warship, the Nautilus strikes a reef and is badly damaged and starts to take on water. They stop the leak just in time to be attacked by a giant squid. As the crew fights it off, it grabs hold of Nemo and Ned spears the beast with a harpoon leading to its defeat. This is probably... I mean, by evidence of my panic attack on the ride, <laughs> this is probably the most iconic scene in the movie. To a point where not I, I had never seen it, nor had I read the book before we watched it for the show. 
Wait, you had never seen this movie before? No. I'm shocked. No, it just wasn't on my radar. Okay. Well, p- go ahead with 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 continuing what you were saying here. Um, but that's it because the ride zeroed in on the squid so much. I I really thought the story was them trying to escape the squid the whole time. That as if they were being pursued the entire it's like jaws. Exactly. Exactly. I think the puppet here, the squid puppet, I think it's really good. It doesn't look fake. I mean, you see, and obviously Walt Disney, as an innovator, wanted things to look convincing, but you see so many of these horror films, and most of them were cheaply made B-horror movies, that came out around the same time, and the puppets and the marionettes for some of these creatures just look so stupid. In this case, I really believe that this ship is being attacked by a giant squid. I think... Again, a little editing would have gone a long way. I think if the pacing was a little bit quicker, it really would have been a lot more effective because you wouldn't have had time to really linger on the squid. I mean, it looks amazing, um, but more so in the wide shots, I think. When you zero in on certain things, I think it does start to look a little puppety, especially because you can see where the arm is kinked just because they're so long, they have to raise it with something. Yeah. You can see where it's sort of folded unnaturally and you could see the bend in it where they're trying to hoist it up. Um, so I think if you had maybe gotten a few more shots and just changed it up a little bit, changed up the angle, thrown a few more in there so that it moved a little faster, I definitely think it would have been even more scary. With that said, for its warts in moments like that where you can see the unnatural bend and you can tell that's sort of where the cable is for the puppet, I would take this eight days a week over CGI. Oh, yeah. No, I'm being super harsh. I I totally acknowledge that. But for for what it is and for its time, yeah, it's amazing. I agree with you that the pacing here slows up, not so much in the attack itself, but in the chase and pursuit that the squid has with the Nautilus because it catches hold of it and then it gets away and then it catches hold of it again. That could have been sped up a little bit. I think regardless, the scene is still very much exciting. And I think it's important that you see Ned, in spite of all of it, he does not trust this Captain Nemo who has taken him you know, captive. Really, now he's a prisoner on this ship that he's being held hostage on for all intents and purposes. In spite of all of that, he still does his job. He is still a harpooner, and he saves this man's life. He could have just as easily let him be taken out to sea by this squid. And I think that it says a lot about Ned as a character. Also says a lot about the actor, because Kirk Douglas got really physical. I mean, he's... When he's trapped in the boat he's trying to break down doors he's he's jumping in the water he's swimming i mean he really i i don't know how much stunt work was actually done i feel like this was all him Uh, yeah i think so i also think that drunk ned singing (laughs) with esmeralda the sea lion is brilliant we haven't talked enough about esmeralda i love her I think that's, you know, it does play to to Captain Nemo's eccentricities that he does have a sea lion on board. But I love what they did here. I love the bond that forms. I love that they sing together. Yeah, she's like a dog. She is like a dog, yeah. Nemo, after all of this is done, tells Aranax that he plans on using him to help share his discoveries with the world. But as they arrive at Vulcania they find that there are warships waiting for them, and it turns out that the ships arrived because they found Ned's notes. While being ambushed, Nemo is shot. And as he is dying, he tells the crew that he will blow up the island as well as the Nautilus. And he orders that Ned, Aranax, and Kansai be locked in their quarters because he's taking the crew with him. Ned fights back and breaks the professor out as well as Kansai. They escape the ship with Esmeralda 
just as Nemo destroys the island as he himself is dying. And that's where the movie ends. I mean, it is it is a very abrupt ending uh, to the film, but I kind of don't mind that. Like, the movie itself is long enough. I don't need to see what happens to them after. They escaped, and for me, at least, that is enough of a conclusion. I, 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 I can't speak for you, but I'm curious to see what you have to say. No, I, I definitely agree. I'm also of the school of, like, Jack needed to die at the end of Titanic. Otherwise, it would have been too perfect. So right. I'm totally good with that. What I am surprised about is that, again, this is kind of like what I was saying before. They they didn't save the crew. They didn't try to get them off. You know there's people that are going down with the submarine, that they're trapped in their rooms, and they let the audience just accept that. They don't try to get them off the boat. For for as much as Ned did, you know, he saved Nemo, then the three make their escape. You would think he would have tried, especially being a sailor, to save more lives. But, I mean, then, again, you're going to drag out the end of the movie a little bit. Exactly. And I think that this further proves just how just how brainwashed this crew is by Nemo. Right. It's, it's cultish, really. And if you want to draw another parallel to Pirates of the Caribbean, this is the definition of one with the crew, one with the ship. Yeah. Um, do you have anything else to add on the plot or the special effects or the costuming before we move on to the cast here? No, because I could go on for another hour about how cool the Nautilus is. And that's what I s- mentioned before. I mean, for all intents and purposes, this is a v- kind of a short review of a very long movie that's very significant. But how many times can you say, the set looks great, the special effects are cool, this is great. It's, I mean, I, I think that in conjunction with this cast that we're about to talk about is really what makes it so special. Mm-hmm. Um, because this is going to sound kind of weird. The plot is convoluted, but in theory, it's very simple. And the sum of all of the parts are what make it as brilliant as it is. That's why this film, to my knowledge, really hasn't been remade a lot. I don't know that a lot of people are tackling a remake of this because I think just everything comes together so well i mean what else can you say before you're just beating a dead horse at this point right so let's talk about the cast here because the sets are great the special effects are great the cinematography is great but that doesn't mean anything if you don't have a brilliant cast starting with kirk douglas and it had been a long time since i had seen this movie so for some reason i had it in my mind that he was captain nemo (laughs) I think because he is the star of the film. But interestingly enough, the only name that you think about when you think about characters from this movie is Captain Nemo. So you would just assume that the biggest star of the movie is the biggest character in the movie. Right. What I find interesting about him is, first off, he's a fun character. I think that Kirk Douglas plays him wonderfully, but... There are times where you really don't know whether or not you can trust him because he is there for a job and you can tell that he thrives on adventure and thrives on the sea. But he does have a little bit of pirate in him. And I wonder if he kind of did that intentionally. Right. Aside from that he keeps going after the treasure and that's where his interest is, um... Yeah, you you don't always know that you can trust him. Um, really, I think until he goes to save Captain Nemo, I think that's kind of like the defining moment. Yeah. As far as drawing the good guy, bad guy line. Paul Lucas plays Professor Pierre Aranax. Um, Aranax is a character I find myself getting frustrated with as the movie goes on. Mm-hmm. I understand why he is so intrigued with Captain Nemo, and I feel like Nemo kind of feeds on that because they're very much cut from the same cloth in regards to research and science and how they can better society and further educate people. But the fact that he becomes so blindly loyal to Captain Nemo, 
I half expected him to go down with the Nautilus at the end of the film. I was thinking the same thing. I think out of the three of them that we've talked about, he's the most unreliable character because Ned, you can, even though if you're not sure you can trust him, you can count on him to act in his own self-interest, kind of like a Jack Sparrow. Yeah. Nemo, you can count on him to be self-righteous and act in his own interest. With the professor, you don't really know what he's going to do and and you don't know that you're going to be able to pull him back to the light after he's been drinking the Nemo juice. Yeah. Speaking of Nemo, James Mason. I mean, this is his defining role. Incredible. He is absolutely incredible. I mean, we we've broken down Nemo already, um so I don't feel the need to to dive into it so much as a character, but I do want to put out there that James Mason really did an outstanding job to the point where when we talked about Treasure Island, I said that Long John Silver may be one of the best characters, or at least I alluded to if I never overtly said it. He may be one of the best characters ever put onto film you know, at the Walt Disney Company. And I think that Nemo... Nemo is certainly one of the best. I would put Nemo on, you know, in terms of live action, you know, because it, it is sort of unfair when you think about iconic Snow White and Mickey Mouse, that they're in a class all of their own. Right. But when you when you're talking about live action actors and actresses, I think Long John Silver, Mary Poppins, and Captain Nemo. I mean, he is that he's that spectacular. I would go so far as to say that he's probably even better than Long John Silver. I don't know that he's better than Mary Poppins, but he may be a more intriguing or maybe a better portrayal than even Silver. And and that, that takes a lot to say. I don't know that I would go that far. I do have to say, though, on first viewing, the stoic thing really bothered me, but once we really started breaking it down. I was like, okay, I get it now. This makes sense. This is a perfect choice. And that's something where um, I've never read the book, but this really makes me want to go read it because I'm curious as to how much they stuck to the source material, if this was something that he he added, if this was entirely you know whether it was the the script adaptation or whether it was the actor and and who made the choice to keep him so straight right and mind you because some people are going to wonder well how can we how can we talk about this without comparing it to the book when we did that so much with treasure island don't forget this this was a roulette you know we had we had almost yeah. no time to plan for this yeah so to to get into the book from 1870 by Jules Verne, we just didn't have the time. No, and Treasure Island, that was one that I had read. But I mean, for me, I'm a girl. I'm not going to gravitate. Well, I mean, I did gravitate to Pirates. So like that was one I picked up. And it was actually the author more than anything else because I had read Dr. Jekyll and, Mac and Mr. Hyde. And then I wanted to read more of Robert Louis Stevenson. So that was pretty much a given. This, I just haven't gotten around to it. Yeah. Also because I thought it was Jaws. Yeah. And then Peter Lorre as Kansai. Um, we said it before, good comic relief, but I'm glad that he's not just comic relief because I do think he plays a bigger role in the film and the story in totality. Definitely. This was one of his last roles, actually. Yeah. He died soon after this. We didn't talk about the score by Paul Smith and Joseph uh, it's either Dubin or Duban. Um, the music in this film, we've we've said on the show before, sometimes you have, no pun intended, music that works in harmony with what you're seeing on the screen to add excitement, to add drama, to add fear. Everything about the music and the way that it plays off of what you're seeing on the screen is absolutely perfect. It's as perfect as I think we've seen in any Disney film. I actually think this was way better than Treasure Island as far as the music goes because Treasure Island really had 
like that one little melody that they kept using for everything. Here they really expanded the score. Um, obviously they brought a lot more to the table because you have Nemo playing the organ. So once you get past the, I think it's fair to say cheesy sea shanty, because as much as it does work, it was like, "Mm, where are we going with this? The score really elevates this film. Absolutely. I would put it on par with the Avengers, with Star Wars, with almost any film being made today. I wouldn't say it's Pirates good because to me that's a perfect score. Um, you know, and and you don't have that moment where it lines up with your introdu- introduction to to Jack Sparrow. If they had given Nemo that moment, I might feel completely differently. But they do in a way because you see him playing the organ. Right. But um it, yeah, it's it's excellent, really. And that's where, to me, the shame of it is, I wish this film had more representation in the parks. I would love to go to, like, a Nautilus-themed lounge and hear this music. Yeah. This film did win two Academy Awards, and it should come as no surprise that it won for Best Art Direction and Best Special Effects. Now I think it's time for us to give our final synopsis here and our, our final review. And, and I want to circle back around to something that you just said. Um, you wish that you had more representation in the parks, you'd love to visit this world. So I'm sort of jumping the gun here, but I think the immediate question is, does the film hold up? And I'm interested to see what you have to say about that in 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 uh, response to the underrepresentation at the parks because they did pull it out of Walt Disney World and they did retheme it at Disneyland. And I think Paris does pull a little bit from this era, but I'm talking about what we grew up on and what we know as far as the parks. Uh, but to answer the question, um, I think it absolutely holds up. I think that this film is actually a benchmark when it comes to art direction. And I hope that you know, productions now look to it instead of just resorting to CGI. And I mean, I'm hoping that's something that we're going to see more of, especially because Hollywood has taken a huge hit this year. And rather than do everything CGI, I'm hoping that we can start reverting back to these practical sets that maybe you can make a little bit more cheaply, but make them look amazing. Um, So with that being said, um, yeah, I, I think this is an amazing film. I think it absolutely holds up. And my only knock against it is I wish you had maybe trimmed about 15 to 20 minutes off of it. And th- that would make it like a perfect film. Yeah, I think by 1950s standards, this movie times out perfectly. Um, I think so. Here's the thing. I think the movie holds up. I think that if you asked the younger movie going audience, uh, does the movie hold up? They're going to tell you it doesn't. Um, And I don't think that that has to do with the special effects. I don't think that has to do with the sets. I don't think that has to do with the dialogue. Um, I think it does have to do with the pacing at times. I think that younger, uh, younger members of the audience are used to things being totally action packed all of the time. Look no further than an Avengers film because even with the Star Wars movies, there's a lot of ebb and flow and things do slow down a little bit. Um, I feel like you don't get that quite as much in a Marvel movie. And I feel like for, say, a teenager or or a preteen watching a movie, that is sort of their benchmark because the MCU took over a decade to build up into Endgame. So... I think that that is what their benchmark is for adventure movies, whereas our generation, it was the Indiana Joneses of the world and and James Bond. And then before that, it was films like Treasure Island and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. So in that aspect, from a park's perspective, as much as I'd love to see it, it doesn't hold up because I don't think that there is enough interest you know, uh, on the wide spectrum. Right. From mature movie audiences to young movie audiences where you can justify spending time and money and retheming an entire area based on this film. 
it's not a knock on the movie, but the times are changing. Do I agree with how the times are changing? Not necessarily, but, I mean, we ourselves have said there are parts of this movie that does drag on, so I don't want to be a hypocrite either. Um, But with that being said, I think it's an incredible film. I think it is one of the best that this company has ever released, and I wish that younger audiences could sit here and have an open mind and understand that back in the 1950s, this is what was acceptable in terms of pacing. And to sit there and sort of look past that and see brilliant special effects, beautiful sets, complex characters, a great cast, great music, that's what I would hope would happen. I just don't know if that would actually be the case. Right. No, and I agree with you because do I think they're going to revert the ride to showcase this instead of Nemo, meaning the Pixar Nemo? No, absolutely not. They're never going to put it back. But I'm saying for those of us who do appreciate it, and especially because it does look so cool, and for the place that this holds in the Disney film history, I think it's important to maybe hat tip it a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, they they had to they never had tip Treasure Island, which between if you're comparing the two films, I st- I personally I think Treasure Island still reigns supreme between the two. I think Treasure Island is the better movie, um, but I mean other than other than a souvenir glass out of Trader Sam's and a couple of tributes in the park, y- you don't really see anything regarding this film in the parks at all i mean i think treasure island is a little bit different because they were working on an entire pirates ride so you had something for the genre there sure but yeah i i kind of hate that this was totally lost with time and when when you think about it that it is reduced to a souvenir cup albeit it's beautiful it really is a shame to think that that's where the legacy of this film now lives. Absolutely. And we're interested in your review and your opinion of Treasure Island. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. You can also email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week coming up in just a moment, but first, a quick break. Hey, everyone. This is Brian down here in South Florida. I'm about two hours south of Disney. And when it comes to planning vacations, Jackie's the way to go. I have a quick story for you. When it came to booking my family vacation for my two-year-old daughter and my wife, you know, like everybody, I immediately went to the internet, started scouting prices, compiling lists, and uh, building my perfect vacation at Disney. Just out of curiosity, I reached out to Jackie. She mentioned she was uh, booking vacations for many people. So I gave her my uh, list, my itinerary. She looked it over, and when she came back to me, she gave me her recommendations in regards to the parks. However, she also had new pricing associated with it. Um, I've learned that going on my own doesn't necessarily mean that I'll be getting the best pricing. Jackie was able to beat the majority of the pricing within my list and saving me a ton of money, but she has the insight and the connections to do so. On top of that, it was stress-free, so all my vacations in the future are gonna be through her because I don't have to think about it. She plans it, I give her some information in regards to what I wanna do, what my plans are for that week when I go visit Disney and she'll make it happen and create the itinerary for me. She's a market expert. Myself, I go into a park, I immediately hop on the next line, I get a few fast passes, and at the end of the day, I don't accomplish everything like I would want to. She advised on which rides to attack first, which restaurants I should schedule on what day, and how to properly allocate my time to maximize my vacation. It was an amazing process. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Way to go, Monoreal. Keep it going. So if you would like a Nautilus of your very own from Trader Sam's, get in touch with me at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. News of the week, I mean, what else? Um, The tragic, untimely, unfortunate passing of Chadwick Boseman at the age of 43. Obviously a career... I mean, this guy, uh, he had... I don't want to call it a career-defining role as King T'Challa because this guy tackled so many important Thurgood Marshall. Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson. James Brown. I mean, if there's one thing that could be said about Chadwick Boseman is that he was fearless. Fearless in tackling, I mean, these roles that were so 
culturally significant, so timely, um, and I think that that ties back around into how he battled this evil, unholy disease. Um, and, and we've all known people who have lost a battle to cancer. To him, to have lost it so young is startling. Almost as startling as knowing that he was still filming these movies and in between movie roles, going through these treatments, and, and he, he battled it privately, but he battled it bravely. And I think that that is the everlasting legacy that Chadwick Boseman is leaving behind on this earth. Very well said. Yeah, aside from how incredibly shocking and sad I was when I found out the news, that was probably the thing that stuck out most to me was that I just can't imagine being on set every day and this is what's going on in your own personal behind the scenes. He, he, in that regard, he truly is a superhero. Yeah, and, and I think saddest of all, other than his loss, which obviously supersedes all of this, is that we are not going to see the brilliance that lies ahead. You know, like there were, this guy had so much, I mean, not that he had to prove anything to us, but he had so much more to give. And I mean, when you think about act, like look no further than James Dean. I mean, this guy made three movies and it was over. Mm. Was killed in a car accident. Very sad. Something that was avoidable. I think when you look at actors and actresses, because musicians are on their own, they're, they've written the rule on dying young, but I think when it comes to actors and actresses, when they go so young in their prime and it's so shocking, you know, unfortunately, it, it always seems like it was something that was avoidable, a drug overdose, a car accident. You know, this is just so insanely sad, but insanely unique for somebody that was a global superstar and I, I can't reiterate enough that he did this so privately. It's just astonishing to me. No, and then the question becomes, obviously, what about the franchise? Which, I mean, Marvel, Disney, they have all released their statements. I, I think, you know, their, their, their mind is where it should be right now. It's with the grief and with the loss. And they're not being business-minded as far as the franchise but you do have to wonder it's you know the Black Panther films they are the films that society needs right now but at the same time is that fair to do to him because this should be Chadwick Boseman's legacy and as I understand it the Black Panther films that they were working on were prequels so do we need them for the MCU moving forward not necessarily we could just kind of let this go and be his legacy. Right. You could do that. Um, I think there certainly is, as you said, a need for these films. I mean, listen, admittedly, I don't, I don't read a ton of the comics of, of any, um, to be clear, I read almost none of the comics in the MCU. I love the MCU films, but I've always been drawn to DC comics Batman goes without saying, and also Green Lantern. Mm -hmm. You know, I really never got into the Marvel comics. I I mean, we know that the Black Panther as a character is never just one. I mean, it's one person at a time, but it's not limited to one person. The legacy continues and gets passed on. So if there is a universe in Marvel where he is no longer the Black Panther, the way that the Green Lantern is not always Hal Jordan. It, it, or it, Captain America. Right. It, we know that it changes. If there is a storyline where he is no longer, when Black Panther is no longer T'Challa, I feel like, out of respect to Chadwick Boseman, that's the storyline that you kind of would have to weave in. I don't know. I think you're right. I don't know that you can just replace him. Yeah, that that's my point. I don't want to see it recast. If that's the story that they're going to follow where it, it can change and it can be a different person and it's passed down, then let's let it breathe for a while. Let's let everyone grieve. Let's, out of respect to his family, let them grieve for a while and then maybe we revisit, revisit this. Yeah. 
Well, thank you guys so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Monoreal Radio. You can also email us, monorealradio at gmail.com, and get links to all of the social media and all of our contact information, as well as all of our episodes on monorealradio.com. Be sure to join us next week where, spoiler, we are talking about Monsters, Inc., So you guys can go ahead and watch Monsters, Inc. and then join us for our discussion next week and then be a part of the discussion as well. And uh, don't forget to hit subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. And if you feel so inclined, uh, we always appreciate a review left for us on iTunes. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.